Well, good morning. It is very good to be with you all. Since we just commissioned and prayed for a big team of folks to go and serve with these dear children in the foster care system, and we've also got another team going to serve on the Warm Springs Reservation in a couple of weeks, uh, we thought that it would be good to spend time this morning in a passage that addresses care for the least of these, as Jesus put it, the poor, the needy, the suffering, those in need of compassion. And one of the first passages, at least that comes to my mind, uh, as we think about these themes, is, the, is this story that we're looking at here today of David, the king, and Mephibosheth, this crippled man that he shows kindness and mercy to. And here's why I think we need to hear this passage. I think why, why it's so helpful for us this morning is because it's not only a beautiful picture of mercy. It is that as King David shows kindness to this crippled man. But it's also a powerful picture of how God relates to us, how God relates to you and me, how he shows us mercy and kindness, and uh, which we find to be the foundation for why we show mercy to others. And it, fr- and, and it frames all of this within the context of faithfulness, which is beautiful. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And I think, really, whether you're a Christian or not, or some of you here are not really sure I think that what this passage shows us about faithfulness and mercy is some of the stuff that you and I have the hardest time wrapping our minds around and the hardest time believing in our hearts about how God relates to us. So I'm going to read this passage for us. This is 2 Samuel chapter 9, and then I'll pray and we'll take a look at it together. This is God's word. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, 
for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take a look at this together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that in it you do teach us, that you do make yourself known to us. We ask that you would open us up to what you would have to teach us this morning. Please, we ask you to give us a richer and fuller and truer understanding of what it means that you are merciful and faithful to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's, it's wedding season, in case you hadn't noticed. Uh, one of the privileges of my job is that I get to participate in a lot of weddings. I love it. Weddings are just fun. They're just fun to be around. If you've ever been a part of a wedding, which I imagine a lot of you have, um, you know that there is a ton that goes on on a wedding day, right? You got to show up early. You got to make sure everything's in place. There's the decorations. There's the flowers. How does the groomsmen pin boutonnieres on? And uh, you got to find the groomsmen lost, lost pants, which happens more than it should. Um, and then you got to take some pictures. All the guests show up. And then you have this beautiful ceremony. There's the bride, the groom, the music. It's beautiful. It's awesome. And then there's this huge party, and it's fantastic. And there's cake, and there's dancing. And then the bride and the groom leave, and then you clean up, right? It's, it's, a, it's huge. So much happens on a wedding day. But there is only one thing right, that happens on a wedding day that actually establishes the relationship that exists between a husband and a wife. There's only one thing that happens that actually establishes the grounds for faithfulness in this relationship. And it only takes like about a minute, right? And it's when, when you say, I, Brian, take you, Gail, or you would insert your own names, uh, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we're parted by death, right? A lot of stuff happened on the day that Gail and I were married, but the reason for faithfulness between us, the reason that we're married is not because there was an awesome party. There was. But it is because of the covenant bond that we entered into together by promising ourselves to each other. In other words, every day that Gail remains faithful to me, and sticks with me, she is showing me covenant faithfulness. And it is sometimes a reflection of how we feel. It is always an expression of the promises that we made to each other, right? Why are we talking about marriage? You're like, I thought this story was about David and some guy named Mephibosheth, which by the way, is a great name. And if you're looking for baby names or anything, I'm just saying, Why are we talking about marriage? The reason we're talking about it is because marriage is a covenant-based relationship. It is a promise-based bond that exists between two people. And all throughout the Bible, what we find is that the way God relates to us is by covenant. That's what we're told. God makes promises to his people, and he is faithful to those promises. And it is his faithfulness to those promises that binds us to him and establishes the relationship that exists between his people and himself. God makes promises and his faithfulness to those promises is what establishes our relationship with him. And that is the kind of relationship that is on display in this passage. Look at verse 1. David says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Okay, 
Who are these people? There's a lot of names mentioned in, in this passage. Who are, the, who are the main characters here? David is the king of Israel, okay? Saul is the previous king, but it's not David's father. It's a different family. And Jonathan is Saul's son, the previous king's son, and incidentally, David's best friend. And not just like buddies. There is this rich, deep, intimate friendship that we read about. It's one of the most beautiful pictures of friendship that you can find. And, uh, and, and that there, it, it even says their souls were knit together. And, and it says that because of their love for each other, the, the love between Jonathan and David, these friends, it says because of their love for each other, they make a covenant between themselves. A promise, and we read this in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel. It says, They made a vow in the name of God, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between your offspring and my offspring forever. And as far as we know, when they made that promise to each other, that was the second to last time they saw each other. Then the last time they see each other, which is a couple chapters later, they actually renew those promises. And so, and so David says, is there anyone left of Saul's family so that I can show kindness to them? And that word kindness here is actually a very, very specific Hebrew word that shows up all over the Bible, which, uh, it, which is this. It's hesed, which you don't need to know Hebrew. That's not important. But the, the point is, this is, this is covenant faithfulness. This isn't just like show some kindness. What he's referring to here is covenant faithfulness. So what David is asking is, is there anyone left in Saul's house so that I can make good on the covenant promises that I made between myself and Jonathan? Side note here, before we get too far into this, lest you think that this story is glorifying David and making us, we're supposed to think David is awesome, just after this is the whole Bathsheba thing, okay? Um, this is not intended to glorify David. It is intended to point our eyes forward to the greater king, David's greater son, Jesus. What we have in this story is a beautiful, beautiful picture of covenant faithfulness. And it has a whole lot to tell us about how God relates to us, what covenant faithfulness really means and what it actually looks like. My hope is for us, as we wrestle through this a little bit, as we think deeply about what covenant faithfulness is here in this story, is that my hope is that um, this idea that God has entered into a covenant with us, his people, might be a little more rich and fuller for us, that he's faithful to the promises he's made. I want us to wrestle with that. So here's what I want us to see briefly, three things that I think we see here in this passage. First is that covenant faithfulness is undeserved. The second is that covenant faithfulness is unexpected. And the third is that covenant faithfulness is extravagant. It's, so first, covenant faithfulness is undeserved. <clears throat> so David's wanting to, to find any descendant of Jonathan, anybody, even extended family. He says anybody of the house of Saul so that he can remain faithful to the covenant he's made to Jonathan. Verse, true, ver, verse 2, he tracks down one of Saul's servants, Saul's old servants, Ziba. And he says, hey, is there anyone in Saul's family left that I can show him covenant faithfulness? And Ziba says, yeah, there's actually a son of Jonathan, and he's crippled. 
And we still aren't told his name, although if you were reading straight through, you would uh, maybe have some bells going off in your mind remembering about Jonathan's crippled son. So David says, well, where is he? And he says, well, he's living with this guy named Makir, who's the son of this other guy named Amiel in a town called Lodabar. And so verse 5, David sends his men to go and to get him and to bring him to himself, to Jerusalem, to his palace. And it says, verse 6, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. So pause button. Who's Mephibosheth now? He's Saul's grandson, right? Saul was Israel's first king, which things seemed to kind of maybe start off okay, but turned into a total train wreck with Saul. He rejected God. He did things however he wanted. He was power hungry. He was a control freak. And God rejects Saul as king. He anoints David as his replacement. And so Saul spends about 20 years hunting down David, trying to kill him. The entire army of Israel is hunting David for almost two decades. Later, Saul and Jonathan both die in the same battle. And David gets installed as king. But one of Saul's other sons, this guy named Ishbosheth, also claims the throne. There's a civil war for several years. Ishbosheth gets assassinated. But David is finally king. There are no more rivals to the throne. An ordinary practice in those days would be that anyone else of the rival um, king's family, anybody who might try to claim a right to the throne, normal practice would be you'd have him executed. So here's Mephibosheth, right? The only surviving heir of Saul, the last descendant of the rival dynasty. And what do you think he was expecting when David's men show up at his house, and he says, they say, the king has sent us for you. He wants you to come. What do you think he was expecting? Verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. He calls him by name. He dignifies him. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear for I will show you kindness. I will show you covenant faithfulness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. What did Mephibosheth do to receive the king's favor? Nothing, right? He didn't even come on under his own power, right? He was crippled. David's servants had to pick him up and bring him to him. David sought him. David found him. David brought him to himself. And not because he had done anything, not because he was worthy of it in and of himself, but because of a promise that was made out of sheer love before he was even born. What a beautiful picture of how God relates with people like us, how we receive the favor of God. He seeks us out. He finds us. He brings us in, not because of anything that we've done, not because we deserve it in any way in and of ourselves, but because of a promise that has been made in the blood of Christ. So covenant faithfulness is undeserved. It's also unexpected. 
there's more to Mephibosheth's story uh, than, than just being the rightful heir to the rival dynasty. Uh, we know that he was crippled. It says, it explicitly mentions it twice in this passage that he was lame in both feet. And we actually know the story behind this. Um, if, if you were reading all of Second Samuel, when Jonathan, his father, and Saul, his grandfather, were killed in battle against the Philistines, everyone knew what the next step was going to be uh, for conquering Israel. It would be to kill all of their households. Um, so, so this is in Second Samuel chapter 4. It says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. And here's how that happened. He was five years old. Five years old. When the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Okay, Mephibosheth has spent his entire life in hiding. Right? Hiding who he is. Hiding his royal identity. Because it's not something that he can be proud of at this point. It is actually shameful. It is a danger to himself. He has had privileges denied to him as a son of a king. He has been hiding out in this place called Lodabar, which literally means the place of no pasture, the place of no rest. And all of it is accentuated and it's right in front of his face every single day because he's crippled. He cannot get out of bed under his own power. And all of this happened to him when he was too young to even understand what was going on. He lives in constant shame and constant hiding and not because of anything that he did. What do you think went through Mephibosheth's mind when he heard the name King David? Surely he heard about him a lot growing up. I think he probably hated David. I, I have to imagine that he had thoughts like, he is the reason my life looks the way it does. He's the reason I can't walk. He's the reason I grew up without a dad. He's the reason I'm not king right now. And he probably heard all these stories about great King David and in his heart, I would expect a great amount of bitterness. Of course, it wasn't David's fault. It was his grandfather Saul's fault. But I'm sure that doesn't keep Mephibosheth from resenting David, right? So imagine what was going through his mind as he's brought to David. I imagine that he was, ter- yes, terrified for his life. But I think he was probably also thinking, I hate that man. Do you see yourself there at all? Some of you, your story, you feel like you've spent your entire life hiding. Some of you, uh, it's because of things you've done. Some of you, it's because of things that have been done to you. Things that other people have brought into your life. Maybe you hear Mephibosheth's story of shame and worthlessness that's thrown on him at an age when he's too young to even understand what's going on. And you think, that's, that's me. And your life has been marked by hiding and bitterness and pain. And some of you have said to God, because of your shame, because of the things you carry around in your life, I hate you. I kind of feel like this is your fault. Even if you know it's not really his fault, it's somebody else's fault, but you still, there's a simmering resentment. Look, Covenant faithfulness is unexpected because it's not how we work. 
It's not how we think. We think kind of like Mephibosheth, verse 8, who am I that, I should, that, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? In other words, I look at myself, and what I see is the rotting corpse of a dog. I disgust myself, and I expect you to, dis- to be disgusted by me too. And there's deep bitterness, and our expectation that we carry into our relationship with God is that you will relate with me according to what I deserve, according to my worth, because that's the way I view myself. That's the way I relate with myself. But covenant faithfulness says your worth to me and my love for you is rooted in the fact that I have promised myself to you. It's not based on how beautiful you are or how much you bring to this relationship or how defiled you might feel. It's not based on all the things you feel like you need to hide. Here's one way to think about what Jesus says to you and me as he covenants himself to us. He says, I, Jesus, take you, Brian, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward and forever for my better and for your worse, for my riches and for your poverty, for your sickness and for the health that I will bring to you to love and to cherish, and we won't even be parted by death. Right? That really is the only remedy for the kind of deep-seated bitterness of soul that some of us carry around. Last thing, covenant faithfulness is extravagant. We've seen it's undeserved and it's unexpected, but it's also extravagant. This is really amazing because David doesn't just say to Mephibosheth, Here's what, this is what I would do if I was David. I'd be like, you know, you can come and be my servant maybe. I'm not, look, I'm not going to kill you. You kind of make it in on a technicality. So uh, you're all right, I guess. No, he says, come and be my son. He, even, he restores his inheritance. It's like, take, take the land, take the servants. And not only that, verse 7, you shall eat at my table always. Verse 10, Mephibosheth shall always eat at my table. Verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Verse 13, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he always ate at the king's table. That is repetitive on purpose. Is trying to emphasize over and over and over again that his rightful place, not because of himself, but because of the king's faithfulness, his rightful place is at the king's table. This is such a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? The king's enemies are not only spared, they're actually given a seat at his table, made to be his children, made to be his heirs. God is not stingy with you. That's what this means. When you're, when you're pulling out of Winco, on, pulling out of the parking lot, and there's the guy on the corner with the cardboard sign that says, anything helps. And in your mind, you're thinking, what's the bare minimum I can give and still feel really great about helping this guy out? You know, after, it's not like I owe him anything. I just want to be kind. That's not how God treats his children. That's not how God thinks about showing us mercy. 
God's covenant mercy is not stingy. It is extravagantly generous. The Lord's Supper is such a perfect picture of this, isn't it? The king hasn't just sort of thrown you some change or handed you a granola bar out the window. He has brought you in. He's seated you at his table. He has made you his son, inheritance and all. And he even says, like, look, I'm not just being kind and merciful to you. I'm not just showing you compassion. Actually, because of Christ, because of who he is, because of what he does, and because of your union with him, this is actually rightfully yours. I owe this to you. I cannot withhold from you a seat at my table without betraying the promises that I have made to you in the blood of my son. I can't help but imagine, like, what do you think that was like the first night at dinner at David's table with Mephibosheth there? Like, I kind of picture the, ser- the king's servants carrying him in because he was crippled, right? And I picture people sitting around the table, some of them kind of whispering to each other or just thinking in their minds, like, Him? Who is that? First of all, who is this? Second of all, why is he here of all people? And maybe he even was still carrying around this sense of shame. He's been hiding his entire life, and maybe he's sitting there thinking, there is no way that this is where I belong. And I picture David standing up and announcing to everybody, hey, everybody, this is Jonathan's son. His name's Mephibosheth, and this is where he belongs. Right here at my table, right alongside of all my other children. Right. Which, incidentally, for those of you who aren't Christians, aren't really sure, if you would come to this table with us, if you would join us here, if you would hear and receive this invitation to mercy, And God's extravagant generosity, what we would say is, hey, everybody, this is the newest member of our family. This is exactly where he belongs. She belongs right here at this table. In closing, how does this connect with the way we think about caring for others, showing others mercy and compassion It's just this, look, the way that we care for others, the way that we relate to those who are in need is informed by the way that we understand how God has related to us in Jesus Christ. In other words, if you want to understand how well someone understands the mercy of God, if you want to see how well somebody gets it, the mercy of God, which is rooted in his faithfulness to us in Christ, look at how they care for those who are in need. And that's not just like Fry's big radical idea. That was Jesus. Matthew chapter 25. Look, if we don't understand that our relationship with our Father is covenantal, that it is rooted in His faithfulness to His promises, if we don't understand that, we will constantly be, first of all, doubting His love for us or hiding from Him, 
or trying to earn his favor and at the same time probably having a really hard time showing others mercy because we will relate with others the way that we expect that God relates to us. Look, if God relates to us based on us, if he relates to us based on what we bring to the table, man, I'm not too optimistic. But if he relates with us based on Christ, if he relates to us based on the covenant that he has made with us in his blood, well, we're safe forever. Amen? Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, forgive us for our far too small a view of your faithfulness. We thank you so much for the care that you have shown us. Forgive us for the ways that we misunderstand your mercy, fall into thinking that this is something that we have contributed to. And I pray that you would give us each a new sense of rest in the security and the finality of your mercy because of your faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.